0: Amen, amen. Good morning, Transit Church. How are you all doing today? Good, good. All right, well, open up your Bibles to Acts 8, Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in a lot of verses here, Acts 8 9 through 25. Uh, if you're new to the transit, we're, we've been going through uh, the book of Acts from uh, the pulpit here since February. And if you were here with us last week, you know that we looked at Acts 8, verses 4 through 8, where Philip goes to Samaria. In the past couple of weeks, what we've seen is we've seen a transition in the early church after Pentecost, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is that the church was kind of contained in Jerusalem. Uh, great things were happening within the walls of Jerusalem, but then there was this non-apostle man, full of the Spirit, named Stephen, who was one of the seven who was chosen to oversee the the daily distribution for the widows. And uh, he was persecuted. He was and, and he was stoned. He was he was martyred, and, and his death was kind of the spark that lit this fire of persecution that came against the church where Saul of Tarsus was. They say ravaging the church, arresting women and and men ripping them from their homes, and, and so what happened was the church that was contained in Jerusalem scattered, um, and they, when they scattered, they went to Judea and Samaria, fulfilling what Jesus said in Acts eight. when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power to be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, and what we saw last week is that Philip, a non-apostle, Philip, a non-apostle, left Jerusalem and went to the Jews' hated enemies, the Samaritans. He went to Samaria and he preached the good news of King Jesus, his resurrection, his death on the cross, his ascension, and the kingdom that he ushered in. And what we saw last week, the title of the message last week was that when, this is what it looks like when heaven invades Samaria. Philip didn't go fleeing as a refugee to Samaria. He went as an agent, an ambassador of the kingdom of God, preaching good news and operating the power of the Spirit to usher in the restoration that Jesus Christ wants to bring to all of creation. Wherever there's uh, sickness or sin or disease or the demonic, Jesus Christ is going to wash that away and to renew and restore all things. And so that kingdom Uh, was was in breaking into Samaria. So paralytics were walking and those who were demonized, demons were crying out with loud shrieks as they were being cast out and droves were coming to salvation. And so today in our text, where we're at in Acts 9 through 25, is we're still with Philip in Samaria. We're still with Philip in Samaria. We go from the generic to the specific, and we get introduced to a man named Simon, Uh, and some translations call him Simon the Sorcerer, and the Samaritans actually called Simon, believe this, the great power of God. And this man captivated the whole region of Samaria with his magic and his sorcery. But what we see in our text today is that in an instant when the kingdom of God comes and the power of the Spirit, the region shifts immediately from being captivated and ooed and awed by Simon to giving their lives to Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, and laying down their lives and following him, being baptized, okay, and they were saved. It's a beautiful picture. And First Corinthians 4.20 says this, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God does not consist just in talk, but in power is what we looked at last week. The kingdom advanced both through proclamation, through declaration, and also demonstration of God's kingdom coming by the power of the Spirit. And so two things we're going to be kind of looking at in our text today, we've got a lot of ground to cover, but one, we're going to be looking at the necessity of the power of the Holy Spirit in advancing the kingdom of God, because what we see is that through these signs and wonders that accompanies Philip's preaching of the gospel, an entire region, it seems, almost overnight, gives their lives to Jesus and then the second thing we're going to be looking at, too, is some of the pitfalls that we can fall into as we, based off the, uh, the imperatives in Scripture, we as we press into pursuing and operating in the power of the Spirit, there's some pitfalls that we can fall into that Simon, the sorcerer, who gave his life to Jesus, uh, wrestled with. Okay, So we've got a lot, a lot of ground to cover. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to pray and then uh, kind of go through this verse by verse. So join me in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just come before you so grateful, Lord Jesus. Thank you, uh, Jesus, that you've given us access. Thank you, Jesus, that you've restored to us life and life everlasting. You've given us uh, our true purpose, our true identity. You've reclaimed us, God. You've purchased us for your purposes, for your love, for relationship with you. We're the most blessed and privileged people on the planet to inherit your presence, God, both now and forevermore. So we say thank you, God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come with the preaching of your word, that you would have your way with our hearts, Uh, That you would breathe life, God, where there's fatigue or exhaustion, where there's a need for endurance, where there's a need for joy and strength and resolve. Holy Spirit, would you come and breathe life, God? Breathe life, refreshing, Lord God. Delight. Show us Jesus, God. Show us the depths of his love for us, God. So come, Holy Spirit, the preaching of your word, we say have your way. Have your way with our lives. Have your way with our hearts. May Jesus' name be magnified and increased today. And may I be forgotten up here. We pray this in your name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Verses 9 through 11. Here we go. Verses will be on the screen. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody Great. Don't you love it when people like tell themselves that they're great? Anyways, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. Okay, So immediately from the outset of our text, we get introduced to this man named Simon. And Luke, the author of Acts, goes at length through the inspiration of the scriptures to just kind of describe this man, this magician, this sorcerer. And three times, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, we see that Simon amazed the Samaritans. Right? They all paid attention to him. Why? Because he amazed them with his sorcery. His magic, and uh, he was what 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 Luke is kind of getting at is is this guy Simon. One, he was really really good at what he did, and both Simon and Samaria knew that he was really really good at what he did. And um, often when we hear the word magic, we have a misunderstanding of what magic meant in the first century. Okay, so when we hear Simon the magician, immediately we think tuxedo, slick back hair, he's on a stage somewhere in Samaria, final countdowns playing, right? Da na na na. Welcome, Samaritans, to the greatest show on earth. Watch as I pull this scarf out of my mouth. Oh, you know, like praise me, right? Like that's uh, that's not what's happening here, okay? That's not get get that picture out of your head. We don't have with Simon the magician a first-century David Blaine. We have a we have a first-century witch doctor, okay? That's what we have. Um, a secular definition pulled off of the internet. There's not a biblical definition, but just just just. This is what the definition of sorcery looks like. When you hear magic in the first century, it means sorcery. The art, practices, or spells of a person who is supposed to exercise supernatural powers through the aid of evil spirits, black magic, and witchery. So he's essentially a witch, a witch doctor, operating kind of these secret arts. This is a secular definition. Summoning through these secret arts, manipulating demonic, supernatural demonic power, for his own purposes. And so what would happen is the people in Samaria, they would come to him with needs to say, hey, uh, my son or my daughter or myself, I need healing. I need healing. Can you like burn some sage or like, you know, whatever, do whatever they do. You know, I don't know what they do. Anyways, and, and I need healing or I need, I need financial increase and, or, or you know, what? better yet, I need to put a hit on somebody. I got beef with my neighbor, you know, he's, uh, his weeds are growing in my lawn and I, I need you to put a hit on him, you know? And, and the way it would work was they would pay him money. Most likely, this is how it works. It still happens today in like third world countries. Uh, they would, actually still happens today in, in America. Um, and uh, they pay money for him to access that supernatural power for his benefit, okay? So all that to say is that is what's happening is they pay Simon for these services and through supernatural demonic power, Simon actually makes it come about. You might say, "Okay, well, how can you know that?" Because in the text, what we say is that um, the Samaritans didn't call Simon a very skilled magician who had some really cool tricks. And doesn't say like the Samaritans, like, "Man, Simon's stage presence is just so good, right?" No, no, they, <laughs> that's not what it was. They said he was the he, whoa. There you go. He said he was the power of God the power of God who is called grace. So there was a, a supernatural, real demonic power he was operating in. He wasn't going around Samaria with a deck of cards. He was rolling around Samaria with a posse of demons. And I think often in the church, we lose sight of the fact that um, the demonic is real and there actually is supernatural power behind the demonic, okay? We don't glorify that. What we're gonna see is that power gets toppled when the power of the spirit comes, doesn't even hold a candle to that. But biblically, we see an example of this in Exodus, the Exodus narrative. If you look at chapter seven and eight, and you see, uh, Pharaoh's magicians. What's 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 hard for us in the twenty first century to wrap our heads around is Pharaoh's magicians were able to mimic some of the signs and wonders that Moses and Aaron, that Yahweh was doing through Moses and Aaron. Serpents could become staffs. Uh, the first two plagues, Pharaoh's magicians were able to mimic. Uh, water to blood, and summoning frogs. Like, like, go read your Bibles. And this is what it says, or, or read with me in Acts 7, 11 through 12. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magi-, so you see sorcery and magicians, magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And the reason I share all that is I think sometimes in the church today, uh, we just kind of grown naive to the fact that there is really supernatural evil and there's demonic behind some of the things we see and there is legitimate power uh, uh, behind that. That, th- that it's not all just, um, uh, and I say this in love, I was, I was praying about what to share this or not. I took it out of my notes and I really felt the Lord wanted me to, to share this. And so I hope you see my heart behind this. Uh, a heart of a shepherd in love, I, I believe it biblically, but also experientially, I just want to, I want to caution us. Sometimes you'll hear the refrain of Christians who will participate in things that are overtly pagan or overtly demonic. There's, there's a myriad of things where Christians will just kind of, without any filters, without any checks, uh, will just participate. Kind of like that 1 Corinthians 10 thing of how can you share in the Lord's table, but also drink of the cup of demons by, by participating in kind of temple stuff, okay? And so with that said, the refrain often is this, is, well, I can do this because my heart is clean before God. I have a clean conscience before God, and that's well and good. Um, I have a 2007 Toyota Corolla, and with a clean conscience before God, I I often leave it unlocked outside my house, hoping someone will take it so I can get a new car. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, but totally clean conscience before God, my, car, my, my car's unlocked, I forgot about it, no big deal, just kind of naive, like, like not, not like a willful, but just not really thinking, it's kind of foolish, right? And my car's been broken into a couple times, it's been broken into a couple times, okay? And God bless them, they got some squeeze pouches and some dried up goldfish, like, congratulations, like, do you realize you both, you broke, it? you think there's going to be something in the 07 Corolla that's worth opening, like, you just walk past that bad boy, man. Anyways... Uh, <laughs> And I think sometimes, you know, in the physical, we would say, yeah, that's foolish. You should lock your doors, lock the doors of your house. But I think sometimes because we'll participate in things, we have no understanding of when 1 Peter 5 8 says, beware, be sober-minded, don't be foolish, stay alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone of your power. He wants to see, uh, are you opening up any doors? Because guess who doesn't give a rip about what the intention of your heart is if the, if the, the doors of your house are wide open? The demonic. The demonic, and there are things that we can participate. And I'm really, I, I am saying this in love. And you can come, I'd love to talk to you more about this. Um, but there are things that we can participate in that are opening up, up a door for demonic, the demonic to get access, to get influence, to get a stronghold he wouldn't have unless we gave him access. Ephesians 4, uh, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger because you'll give the enemy stronger. stronger. What we see there is that through our, our sin, well, w- whether uh, negligent or willful, we can give the enemy something he wouldn't have unless we first gave it to him. By opening up a door. So just want to throw that out there. Returning to our text, um, we see is that Simon through sorcery, he was manipulating real demonic powers for financial gain and personal fame. He was the king of Samaria, and he had built an impressive kingdom for himself until the day that Philip came preaching King Jesus and the kingdom of God coming in power to reclaim and restore humanity back to God and back to God's original design for their lives. And so, verses 12 through 13. But, but see, transition there from Simon now to the, the gospel of Philip's preaching. But when they, the Samaritans, believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And so in an instant... In an instant when God's Holy Spirit manifests uh, omnipotent power, a complete reversal comes about where both Simon and Samaria were, were confronted in their faces with a power that they had never seen before. And that power is so tangible and evident that their amazement immediately shifted from Simon to King Jesus that Philip was preaching, right? And so let it be said from the outset that I believe that Uh, as we proclaim the gospel, that it's still for today, that the Holy Spirit and his sovereignty to operate in signs and wonders, okay? But we do not first chase signs and wonders and use Jesus for for signs and wonders. No, no, no. We preach the gospel, and what we see in Samaria is the pattern this is Philip went proclaiming the goodness of King Jesus, the Lamb of God, crucified for our sins, to rescue us from death, eternal separation from him, Jesus died and rose again to, to, uh, to, uh, to marry us back to our father that we were divorced from because of our sin. There's a separation and Jesus brings peace and unity. And as he did that, the power of the spirit came and, and Philip was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That was the renewal of all things. And that renewal came in power. And what happened was the result was people gave their lives to Jesus. It verified what Philip was saying. And he said, now this is the king who, have, who has accomplished this. This is the king who has ushered in this kingdom. This is just the, for, the first fruits of what is to come for all of eternity. It's Jesus out of love who's ushered this in for you. Lay down your life for him. repent, believe, and be baptized, okay? And uh, a picture of what happened in Samaria was this. When I was a, a freshman in college, I was really big into lifting, uh, weightlifting, because, you know, whatever, that's what you do when you're in college and you don't have, you know... Anyways, you have a ton of free time and a free gym membership. So my buddy and I, we would go to the field house. And the field house is where all the athletes worked out, okay? And we had, you know, our goals. We had our supplements, our weight protein, you know, yada yada, all that stuff. And you, you could be impressed with your own power, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're looking in the mirror and you're curling. And you're like, yeah, I got these big weights, okay? That's well and good until the football team walks into the gym, right? And, yeah, we only had a club team at Mason, okay, but whatever. But there was... When the outside linebacker, you're, you're, you're repping it out and you're, you know, you're doing, you're hemming and hawing, and you're just, you know, trying to see if any ladies in the gym are checking, you know, whatever, because uh, curls are for the girls, you know, and, and you see the outside linebacker go to the bench press. And out of the corner of your eye, you see him stacking these 45-pound dumbbells on each side like he stacks his pancakes at IHOP, you know, that morning. And then he just gets on the bench and just roaring with might, just raw, you know, repping out like 300 pounds. And then he's doing one-handed, and then he's doing his finger, then he's twirling the bar with his finger, you know, and you're just like, I think I'm going to lay these down. You know, hey, I think it's cardio day. I'm going to go hit the Stairmaster, you know, I just really not feeling the workout. You know, hey, we're just going to do some cardio. That's what happened here, right? Like, like Simon was impressed with like well, you know what he could deadlift and, and his PRs and everyone else was kind of amazed until omnipotence walks into Samaria, until so the power of the spirit comes, jaws on the floor, everybody amazed. A dude who is operating in real supernatural power goes, what in the world kind of power is this, right? When you put in the ring the demonic against omnipotence, guess which one wins every single time, right? Often in uh, spiritual warfare, we think it's like, you know, uh, g- like that Satan and God are on equal standing, that both are created beings with limited power. Satan was cre- is a created being who has very limited power. God is the eternal God of the heavens who is omnipotent. He spoke the gal, when he when he gets under the bar and he reps out the galaxies on both ends of the bar and he does not grow weary or faint, uh, you know, Isaiah 40, okay? Okay. That's the God we worship and serve. So amazement in, in an instant comes to Samaria through the power of God. Simon, the great power of God, encounters the real power of God and everyone gives their lives to Jesus. And I think one of the, kind of, uh, one of the tragedies in the church today is uh, we, we, we've lost our awe and our amazement and our wonder of God. Often we're not absolutely just blown away by his power and his might, and his glory, and his strength, and his, and his presence. And I think one of the reasons why is uh, often there's this false teaching out there that for some reason God has decided to limit his power today to no longer do what he did in the book of Acts. And not only that, we're taught that it's actually wrong of us to expect our mighty God to still work in mighty ways. We're taught it's wrong to expect that, forgot to heal, forgot to deliver the demonized, forgot spirit to continue to fall upon people, forgot to speak directly to his people. That's what we're taught. Then the result of that is we lose our awe of our mighty God because we're taught this subconsciously. People who teach us would never say this, but this is what they're saying without realizing it. They're saying that God is actually weaker than he was before because he's chosen to limit his power. That's what they're saying. I mean, I can go show you books in my office where they say God has chosen to sovereignly box himself in to no longer operate, but through the preaching of his word. So theologians through theology are trying to put handcuffs on omnipotence. It's crazy. It's not good. It's not good. Right? Saying that God has shifted from power lifting and he's more into Pilates now. Right? Like there's never going to come a moment and you'll see what happens then is this. What happens then is this, is that there's never going to come that moment we shouldn't expect when God walks into the gym of our lives and blows us away with his might and his power and our jaws on the floor. Because our thoughts about God, what you think about God is crucially important, right? Theology leads to practice. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, like like like, right thoughts about God leads to, to right living or right understanding. And if we think that God is no longer doing any of the miraculous, any of the powerful anymore, then we're not going to expect him to do that today anymore, and we're not going to be amazed and overwhelmed and expect him to do that. I was, um, uh, the Lord has uh, brought a, a, a mentor into my life, uh, a man who is uh, an elder at a church in another state, and I was just kind of picking his brain. He's overseen uh, a prophetic ministry at his church for 20 years, Raising up leaders, helping people um, uh, operate in that gifting in a good way, and so personally and corporately, I'm like, hey, how can I? How can we, as a church, corporately grow in the gifts of the Spirit, being open to that in a way that exalts Christ and builds people up? Um, but also, too, how can I personally fan into flame this gift that I believe that uh, that I've received only by God's grace? Um, and I said, I said, how do you, you know? One of the things I asked him this week was, how do you fan that into flame? Like, what does that look like? When Paul says to Timothy, fan into the flame the gift you've received through the laying on of hands and prophecy that Timothy received some gifts when the apostle laid hands on him. And then the encouragement is you got to steward that. First Peter 4. You steward the gifts God has given you for his glory. And what my friend said was this he goes, it's expectation. It's expectation. And then he said this, what if, what if, what if God loves to speak? What if God has a lot to say? What if when you walk into a grocery store or walk into church, you can say, God, I know. I know you have a lot to say and I know there's a lot of brokenness in this grocery store, and there's probably someone that you want to speak to, someone for me to reach out to you. Do you want to highlight somebody today? It's an expectation that God very well might still do what he's doing in Acts, that he's present with me. When Jesus says, Lo, I am with you, it actually means that his spirit is with us, empowering us, guiding us, meaning that you can have a relationship with the living God of the universe. And he might, ta- he just might, shocker, he might just talk back. Right? Right? And well, sure, we need discernment, right? We need discernment on how to discern the voice of God. But what if our expectation is this, is God, surely you're still in the healing ministry today. Surely you still want to deliver people from demonic oppression. Surely you still want your Holy Spirit to fall upon people and you want souls to be saved in powerful ways. Surely. And so when we have that right understanding of God's heart for his kingdom to advance in love, it changes everything. It changes everything that we don't go along. The the, the refrain of that worship song, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. Lead me, Jesus. I go with you. It's relationship. Everything in ministry now is relationship with Jesus, the spirit of Christ, walking with him, to do ministry with him, right? What if, what if that is our expectation, that there's a lot that God still wants to do? There's a lot that God wants to say. There's a lot of kingdom that he still wants to come, right? If that's the expectation, and I believe it is, because Ephesians three twenty through twenty one, this is what the apostle Paul prays. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, how according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, Amen as a church, do we know who is with us, the God of abundance, who can do far more than we could ever ask or think or imagine. That's the God who is with us. That's the God whom we serve. Returning to our text, Samaria is amazed. The kingdom is coming in in proclamation and declaration and demonstration and in power, and this amazement spread to Jerusalem. The apostles who were still in Jerusalem got news of this, and this is what happens next. And now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive Uh, the spirit. So quick recap of what's happening here is the apostles in Jerusalem get word that Samaria has received Jesus. The kingdom has come. And what's fascinating is that they send Peter and John to make a beeline, make a road trip to Samaria from Jerusalem. And what they don't send Peter and John to do is to kind of police this revival. Like, hey, it's getting out of hand. Like, demons are crying out and like, there's like, well, we got to police this. It's not that. It's not, it's not just to lead a discipleship course. Like, hey, read all these books now that you're a believer. It's not that. What we see them do is they came, it seems it's in the text. And not just to congratulate Philip, job well done, attaboy, we'll handle it from here. It seems as if they're saying, we need, to get, we need to lay our hands on some people, right? And this is what the craziest part of our text, this is the craziest part of our text, is that the Samaritans had salvation. They were baptized. They saw signs and wonders, great signs, miracles, healing, deliverance. And there was yet more, something more that God wanted to give them. Something more that God wanted to give them. So much, and this more that God wanted to give them was so crucially important. Okay, I'm preaching the text here. Read the text. So crucially important that they would send the apostles to come and pray for that, to leave Jerusalem and pray for that. And, and, And this is what the text says. They came down to pray for them, to lay hands on them because they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus and had not received the Holy Spirit. And then verse 16 says this. The Holy Spirit had not yet fallen. On them, and then Peter and John pray for these Samaritans who, who are believers, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And so, real quick, let me say this: There's a ton of debate and differing interpretation on what's ha- taking place here, and it's, a, and it's like biblical scholars that I, I love and respect and disagree on what exactly is taking uh, place here. And the conundrum of this text, which makes it hard to interpret, is how like we see in the text that the Samaritans are believers; they, they've been baptized, they've they profess faith in, in Christ, but yet it seems as if they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. Right? How? And then the conundrum is: Can you be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit? Like, what is this? Right? And Titus three five says this: Jesus saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's the gospel. It's it's the it's the righteousness of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ done unto sinners, so he we can become uh, his righteousness can become ours, and we can be saved. So he saved us not because of our works but because of his righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is that it's frankly, it's impossible to be a believer, to be saved in the Lord Jesus Christ um, without the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit applies the redemptive work of Jesus Christ to your hearts. The regeneration, the, the breath of new life, the sanctification, uh, uh, the, the, the renewal, the new creation. That's all the work of the Spirit now indwelling you. So if you are here today in a Christian, you have received the Holy Spirit, right? Because you cannot be in Christ without having the Holy Spirit. So then begs the question, well, what in the world is happening in our text? A lot of people would say the argument, if, you, if you're familiar with this, would be, well, is this the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Like a second blessing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the way I would say this, and listen, with what I say next, you're free to uh, stay here and attend here and even be a member here and have a different view on what the baptism of the Spirit is. But I'm going to share to you our view uh, up here. I would say, is this the, the official baptism of the Holy Spirit that we see in you know, Matthew 3, uh, uh, John 1, Jesus say in Acts 1-5, that Terry, you know, oh, uh, wait, and I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm talking about Pentecost. And uh, I would say the answer to that question, is this the baptism of the Holy Spirit? is both yes and no. It understands the, kind of what your baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Uh, again, not going into all the varying views. I, <laughs> you can thank me for this later. I had all the views, and I was going to articulate all of it, and I, I was like, this is way too long, so I took it out, okay? Come to me. We can talk over coffee. I can, you know, whatever, all right? Uh, but I believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit describes both salvation and also subsequent baptisms of the Holy Spirit in your life. Okay, baptism is immersion. It means immersion. The Holy Spirit immerses you, boom, that fills you uh, at salvation. And then also, also that there are subsequent fillings that we could call maybe baptisms, encounters, experiential encounters with the presence of God coming uh, upon us or filling us. This is what Sam Storm says. I love the way he says it. Spirit baptism describes what happens when one becomes a Christian. Therefore, all Christians by definition have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. However, I love this, however, there are also multiple subsequent experience of the Spirit's activity. The bottom line is this, is there's more that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. There's more. And don't get lost in the terminology. Believe that there's more. The God of abundance, the God of Ephesians 3, who can do abundantly more, maybe he wants to do abundantly more in your life. However, there are multiple subsequent experiences of the Spirit's activity. After conversion, the Spirit may yet come with varying degrees of intensity, wherein the Christian is overwhelmed. He's empowered. He or she is anointed, or in some sense endued, and this release of new power, this manifestation of the Spirit's intimate presence is most likely to to be identified with what the New Testament calls the filling of the Spirit. So all that says, returning to our text, the Samaritans are saved. They've been baptized in the Spirit. They've received the Holy Spirit, but there's a key line in verse 16 that says this, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. Okay, so when Sam Storms in that quote says a baptism of the Spirit might, might also refer refer to the filling, the subsequent filling of the Spirit, I also think it refers to the Holy Spirit falling upon an individual. We see that pattern in the Old Testament. We see that pattern in the New Testament. The biblical language of not being slain in the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit falling upon individuals, right? And they and they. <laughs> When omnipotence falls on you, you hit the ground, church, <laughs> right? We see that pattern. Go read First Samuel and see what happens to David and then Saul's emissaries and then Saul himself. All right, so with that said... Um, this falling, this uh, uh, whatever you want to put a term on this encounter with the Holy Spirit was so important. The apostles made a road trip just for the sake of getting their hands on these new Samaritans, so they could have that encounter. And what is evident? What I want to say is this: is what is evident in our text is that as the apostles prayed, the Holy Spirit fell upon the Samaritans. in, watch this, and in, in such an experiential, evidential way that Simon saw something so powerful that he goes, I want me some of that. Can I get some of that? Can I purchase that? Okay? So probably what's happening, I don't want you, Jesus is reading into the text. Exegesis, what you want to do is when you draw out the interpretation of the text. We don't want to read into our thoughts, okay? But we do know from Simon's response that there's a physical manifestation coming upon those that are being prayed for when the apostles lay their hands. That could be then, that could, that could be, could be them dropping like dominoes, bam, bang. You know, like that could very well be the Holy Spirit coming upon them. It could be, it could be just a surge of the power of the Spirit. Could be, could be shaking this warmth, right? It could be like we see in Acts two, uh, 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 them them crying out in tongues. But there was something here that Simon the sorcerer who knew supernatural power goes, he's grabbing his wallet, he's saying, "Where do you guys take Venmo? Like, how do I get? How do I get that, right?" And if you're disagreeing with me, I'll illustrate that point for you. If I, if, I, if I come before you today and I say, hey, uh, Joe Workman, I want you to come on stage and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit falls upon you. I'm going to pray for a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. God is sovereign. We're going to talk about this later. We don't make him do, because in his sovereignty, he very well could do that. Right now, he could begin to fall on people as I'm speaking, okay? In his sovereignty, he very well could do it. Let it be, God. Because when he does that, amazing things happen in our lives, okay? But if I call up Joe Workman and I lay my hands on him and pray for him, and, uh, and nothing happens in the physical, and he just walks back to his chair, none of y'all are busting out your wallets. You tracking with me? You tracking with me? But if something happens, and there's this tangible, in-your-face, indescribable encounter, sobering, where you're going, what just happened? I know Joe. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't make that up, right? Something's happening in his life. The Samaritans knew each other. It's the Spirit of God and his love falling upon people. And we're so weary of encounters. And tragically, in the church today, if there's ever a physical manifestation of the power of the Spirit coming upon people, everyone attributes it to the demonic. Disclaimer, I am not saying we have it. We need a ton of discernment. And very well, the demonic could shake and bake you, and and it could be very bad. You get into some very bad waters, okay? But the tragedy in the church today is nobody believes in the power of God anymore so much so that they say God has limited his power to no longer do what he does in Acts, but the enemy has not limited his power. And so anything supernatural, whether it's a healing or a personal encounter with, with something supernatural, oh, it's all demonic, it's all demonic, it's all demonic. So the demonic is free to roam about the cabin and do what he wants, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that, is that, that Jesus Christ himself poured out on the church at Pentecost, and it was weird, there was fire, there was wind, there was, there was speaking in tongues, that was, that, was, that was what Jesus accomplished for his church. And what if, church, what if, and so let me get back to my notes here. (laughs) Begs the question, why does this matter so much to the apostles? What's the big deal with the Holy Spirit coming upon the Samaritans if this is the proper interpretation of the text? And there's for sure a mystery here, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in your life in an experiential way, maybe a peace, a warmth comes over you like a blanket, maybe some of you have experienced this before, Some some of us here, we've been on the floor. Nobody's nobody's touched us. Nobody waved a blazer in our face, but the Spirit of God came upon us. And in those moments, it's the embrace of the Spirit of the living God for a beloved son and daughter. And he takes on maybe to the floor or he... He, he, there's, there's things that the fire of the Holy Spirit will come and refine and purify. I've, I've heard stories of, of guys being taken to the floor, and when they come back up by the Spirit, addictions completely leave them. They never touch the bottle again. The Holy Spirit, might, in, there might be impartation that the apostles are doing here. That's biblical. Just go read Romans. I, I long to come to you that I may impart to you gifts to receive. We see that Timothy received gifts through the laying on of hands, spiritual gifts that he was encouraged to fan into flame. It could be impartation, things taken, things given. But most importantly, for those of you who have had encounters like this with the Holy Spirit, the biggest thing that happens is you begin to get clothed with power for being a witness. And so I think the urgency that we see with the apostles is this, is that they didn't want the revival, the renewal, the the advancement of the kingdom to stop with the Samaritans, to stop with the Samaritans. And if there was this clothing of power from on high, this whatever you want to call it, that with the falling of the Spirit upon them, that there would be a fresh boldness, courage, energy for witness to the nations. Witness to the nations. Those are my, my thoughts. Um, very difficult subject to interpret, and happy uh, to uh, dialogue with you after the service if you hold a different opinion. But returning to our text, Simon the magician sees this power the supernatural power of the spirit that that, uh, Peter and and both Philip are operating in and John, and he asked to purchase it. And this is what Peter, with all the kindness he can muster, says to Simon. (laughs) Verse 20, but Simon, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, and pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many... Uh, to many villages of the Samaritans, and initially we see Peter's response, and we go, "Man, dude, uh, he's a baby Christian. He's maybe a Christian for a couple of weeks or a couple months. Like, easy, Peter, you're throwing out another like, you know, another pronouncement of judgment." But the fact of the matter is this: this is what we need to learn. This is some of the pitfalls we can fall into as we pursue the Holy Spirit. Is that the Holy Spirit is not a power. The Holy Spirit is not an energy, a kind of an impersonal energy. The Holy Spirit is a person. God, the third person of the Trinitarian Godhead. And so that makes the offense of Simon. What's the indictment against Simon? Is trafficking and exploitation of God himself. Woo! Here's the definition of trafficking. The act of buying or selling people or of making money from work, they are forced to do. You see the, you see the, the harshness of Peter's rebuke? What what Peter's saying? You cannot purchase God, my friend. Unlike your sorcery and your magic, uh, uh, you you cannot purchase God, the Holy Spirit, and have Him do your bidding, so that you so that you can advance your kingdom and your money. Because the the power that Simon was seeing, he's saying, "Man, man, my fame, my renown, my kingdom would advance from Samaria to the ends of the earth." Because Simon was proud; he saw pride in his heart, and he wanted. And this is what's so this is what's so dangerous. Some of the pitfalls we can fall into when we begin to pursue, uh, pursue the spirit and begin, begin to be blown away at God moving miraculously in our midst, is all of a sudden it becomes about us and about our kingdom, about our glory, so we can have more stories to share and, and uh, more experience to have and all that stuff, not saying, Lord, I exist. God, you are a person. You are sovereign. And we approach you humbly with reverence and awe. And we ask that you would do what you did in Acts, but for your purposes, for your agenda, for your kingdom, for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom, not our own. And the pitfall that we fall into is we want to pursue the power at the neglect of the person. And we would call this desiring the kingdom without the king. Lord, give me the signs. Give me the wonders. We want the miracles. But let's not really talk about our Savior anymore. right? Let's not talk about Jesus. That doesn't really amaze us anymore. We want the signs. We want the wonders. We want the gifts, not the giver of the gifts. And what's so interesting about our text is Simon didn't ask. People, the Holy Spirit is coming and he's embracing people. There's relational intimacy. There's encounters with the living God that the Samaritans are having. And Simon doesn't want the presence of God. He only wants the power of God. He doesn't say, he doesn't say come and lay hands on me, pray for me. He says, he says, give me some of that. I'll warm up my hands and I want that power. I want the signs and wonders. I don't need the Holy Spirit. I just need the power of the Spirit. Give me the kingdom. I don't want the king. And the question that's put before us, and I'm concluding with this, is as we pursue the gifts, which church is biblical, right? Like 1 Corinthians 14, 1, pursue love and earnestly, zealously, hunger for, desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you prophesy. If, that, if we believe that command is still for today, if we're not obeying it, then we're being disobedient to scripture, right? But we pursue the gifts in love, right? In love, in love, in love for the glory of King Jesus. So let's put that before us as we cry for great outpouring of the Spirit, great renewal to happen in our midst, for gifts to be given, which is biblical. And we have uh, Jesus telling us to do that. in the scriptures: ask, seek, knock. Uh, I believe Luke 11, uh, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we can ask for more. Ephesians 3.20, God can do abundantly more than we can ask or think. We can ask God to do that. But as we do that, let's put before us, Lord, may it be to heal the brokenness around us for the glory of your name. All for your glory. And so uh, we see an example of this in Scripture, and this is the final verse I'll share, is that in Luke 10, Jesus commissioned 72 non apostles to advance the kingdom. He says, I give you power and authority, and Band, you can come on up. Uh, I give you power and authority over serpents, right? To tread on the heads of serpents, I like, am going to read the text for you. And go to king, king go to uh, town to town, proclaim the kingdom and advance the kingdom. And signs, pray for healing, you know, cast out demons, all this stuff. And the seventy-two, they come back after their assignment, their homework assignment of King Jesus, and they come back going essentially saying, "Jesus, it's crazy. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. This is wild. Oh my gosh, they were overwhelmed by the power of God that Jesus had entrusted to them." overwhelmed. Even demonic spirits are subject to us in your name. This is amazing kingdom coming and power. Oh my gosh. And then this is what Jesus says to them. He sees that they're almost going to make the mistake of, of Simon, right? Of keeping their eyes on the power, not the person. This is what he says. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Listen, watch this. Jesus doesn't rebuke them and say, stop casting out demons, stop that weird stuff. He doesn't say, stop, stop, stop doing that. Stop thinking that you have that power. He says, you better keep doing that. That's how my kingdom advanced. But let the source of your rejoicing, your praise, your delight be this. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's saying the source of our delight, Transit Church, is King Jesus it's the love that Jesus has for us, not his power working through us that is the greatest source of our joy. It's Jesus' love for you and me. Not his power through us, but his love for us. And I was thinking and praying about this text, like Jesus, there's a lot of things you could say. Why do you say rejoice that your names are, their names are written in heaven? You could have said, because rejoice in my love for you. Rejoice that I love you. And what stuck out to me as I was praying, as I was blown away, away by this, is the specificity of what Jesus is saying about his love for them. He's saying that there is a book of life in heaven with your specific name etched in the blood of the lamb, never to be erased, never to be removed. Your salvation secure forever. And often in our Christian life, you know we 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 know God loves us, right? John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him doesn't have to perish without God, but has eternal life with God forever. The good news of the gospel. And we go, yes, I know. I know that, that yes, that God loves the world and that in the book of life, it's just, it's just world written in it. No, 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 in the book of life, your name is there. Jesus went to the cross on the other side of the cross with a nail-scarred hand. He was saying, you, Nick Bumgartner. you, Brian Hall, You Don Phillips, your name, Jesus writing your name in the blood of the lamb, in the book of life, forever secure. That's the greatest miracle of all. That's the source of our rejoicing. Jesus knows us by name. He calls us by name and he saves us by our names. Saves us by name. Your name forever etched in the book of life. Why? Because for some reason that we'll never be able to comprehend, God has ferocious love for you. Ferocious love for you to the extent that Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, would leave his throne and absorb the wrath of God against your sins, why? So that you could be with him in heaven forever because this is the truth of the gospel, is that where you are is where King Jesus wants to be. That's why your name is written, specifically, specifically your name, that invitation, secure forever. It's beautiful, it's beautiful. So let's respond with communion and then we'll just segue right into worship. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared one last meal with his disciples. He said, "This is my took bread and broke it. So this is my body, which is going to be broken for you." And he took wine. Said, "This is going to be my blood, just shed for you." And uh, what this meal commemorates is the love that our Savior has for us. The fact that. This is a corporate meal, right? This, is, this foreshadows the, the marriage supper of the lamb that we've been invited to. There's a seat at our table. And also personally, that what this is, is Jesus uh, taking company with you, inviting you to his table to come and feast on his love, his broken body and his shed blood. is his love for you to rescue you from your sins and to bring you into eternal life in his presence forever. So let's do this today remembering and celebrating and being amazed and full of awe and wonder at our King Jesus and his love for us shown in this meal. This is the broken body, the broken body of Jesus for you. The blood of the lamb shed to cleanse you from all unrighteousness forever. We're going to sing one last song of worship to our Savior. I invite you to sit or stand and then I'll come and close with a final benediction. Thanks.